Good morning. Good morning. Well, I'm back for our annual visit. Mike and Lisa are off on vacation. I'm glad for them to be able to do that. I'm glad to be able to see you all again today. If you've got a Bible, why don't you turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. Uh, if you will remember from last year, I preached the first half of 2 Kings 5, so I thought I'd come back and we'd finish off the chapter. And we're doing the second half of the chapter. I'm going to start with giving you three examples, three people in my life, three conversations that I had with friends of mine who have ministered to as a pastor. There's Tommy. Tommy said to me, I don't care. He spent months pursuing his sin, and many times he was reckless about pursuing his sin. It's no surprise that after months of being indulged in the sin that he's wrestling with, as a Christian, he now has a hard heart. Secondly, there's Sally. Sally said to me, I don't know what to do. She had months, sometimes years, of struggling with anger. And she just wasn't sure how to get a hold of that anger and to defeat it. And so Sally wanted to deal with the anger, but she was unsure of how to fight it. And number three was Charles. Charles said to me, I want what I want, and I'm going to get it. Charles was fundamentally greedy, and money had become his god. And so anything he could do to become more wealthy, to become more rich, was his pursuit in life. Greed and money had become his dominant in his life, and he made all kinds of excuses to justify his workaholic lifestyle. What do these three, Tommy, Sally, and Charles, have in common? None of them were fighting their sin like Christians. They had, become, they had come to a very bad place spiritually, and their lack of repentance was bearing bad fruit in their life. So, the main idea for today, and if you like a thesis statement, in two sentences, here's, here's the whole idea of what I'm going to talk to you about in the next few minutes. Unrepentant sin can ruin your life so be warned, your only hope is to repent and run to the cross. Unrepentant sin can ruin your life, so be warned, your only hope is to repent and run to the cross. Now, the key word there is unrepentant, so I just want to clarify what I'm talking about. Repentance is turning your back on your sin, saying no to your sin, running away from it. Unrepentance, or a lack of repentance, is saying yes to sin. It's being stuck in your sin. It's embracing in it and persisting in it. And so we're going to talk about the dreadful life that actually gives in to sin. My sermon today is a warning for all of us who sin, which is everyone in this room. And Gehaziah, who is a servant of the prophet Elisha, is going to be the main character in our story today. He's a picture of someone who lets greed take over his life. And if you're sinning and not fighting your ungodly desires, if you're not concerned about the consequences of your sin, and if you're not actively repenting of your sin, you should be concerned. A lack of repentance will lead you to a very bad place spiritually before the Lord. So we're going to read 2 Kings chapter 5 in just a moment, but I just want to set up the background because we're dropping in the middle of a book. 
Now, First and Second Kings, we're dropping in uh, to hear about the story about these kings. Now, what you see is generation after generation of wicked kings who revolted against God. And these evil, faithless kings turned away from the Lord. And as they turned away from the Lord, both nations that followed these kings, Israel and Judah, followed suit. As the king goes, so also often does the nations go. First and Second Kings teaches us that the failure of human leadership when it turns away from the Lord. No earthly king can actually replace the Lord. Now entering into this mess are two prophets, Elijah and his successor, Elisha. They confront the monarchs and call God's people back to him. The prophets are, prophets are messengers of God's word to God's people. That's their role and their job in life. They are men of faith who stand in stark contrast to the faithless kings and to the people of Israel and Judah. It's Israel's rejection and disobedience of God and his prophets that results in the two nations of Israel and Judah ending up in exile. Now, we are jumping in in the second half of the chapter and not presuming that you were necessarily here a year ago when we talked about the first half of the chapter. So if you want to look down in your Bibles, I want to just run through the first 19 verses real briefly so we get the first half of the story. So when we begin the second half of the story, you know what we're talking about. So look there, verse 1. You see, Naaman is a military commander of the Syrian army and a man highly favored by the king because the Lord had granted him victory in his endeavors. Though a great man, you see there at the end of verse 1, it says, Naaman was a leper. Verse 2, a nameless girl in Israel is taken captive. She tells Miss Naaman that there is a prophet in Israel who can heal her husband of his leprosy. That's verse 2 and verse 3. Verse 4 and 5, Naaman rushes to the Syrian king with the news from this nameless servant girl. It shows just how desperate he was to be healed of his leprosy. The Syrian king dispatches Naaman with a diplomatic letter to the Israelite king. Naaman packs up gold, silver, and clothing because in his day, it's normal to pay for healings to the pagan gods. And this is going to be really important in our story today. Verse 6 and 7, you see there, the Israelite king panics as he reads the letter. He knows he can't heal Naaman from his leprosy, and he mistakes this request as an attempt of the Syrian king to pick a fight, a diplomatic fight between two countries. Verse 8, Elisha hears that the Israelite king tore his robes over this matter with Naaman, so Elisha instructs the king to send Naaman to him. Verse 9 and 10, Naaman and his entire entourage park in Elijah's front lawn. And then Naaman is greeted by a messenger at the front door who tells him to go wash in the Jordan seven times and he would be healed. Verse 11 and 12, notice Naaman gets angry. Verse 11, he says, I thought he would surely come out to me. Elisha treated Naaman like a, ne- a leper, and Naaman didn't like that at all. He, he, he was a great and well-known commander, and he didn't like being treated like a leper. Naaman wanted a prosperity gospel show for Elisha to call out in the name of the Lord, to wave his hands, and to heal him. But Naaman's expectation for the prophet was wrong. Look at verse 12. Naaman thought, why come so far to the Jordan when he could have stayed at home and washed 
in the rivers in Syria. So Naaman goes off in a rage. Verse 13, another nameless servant, a nameless servant gently chides his master, Naaman. The servant says, we come all this way to find the prophet. He gave us a great word to wash and be clean. Essentially, he says to his boss, why not do it? Why not just try what the prophet said? Why not go ahead and do what the messenger told us to do? Verse 14, remarkably, Naaman obeyed the word of the prophet. And you see, the word of the prophet turned out to be true. Naaman was healed. Verse 15, Naaman is converted and he pledges allegiance to the God of Israel. And as is typical in his day, he offers a gift for the healing. Verse 16, Elisha forcefully refuses the gift. Verse 17, Naaman asks to take dirt back with him. Naaman's establishing an outpost of worship for the Lord in the midst of a wicked nation of Syria that worships false gods. And then verses 18 and 19, Naaman asks Elisha for pardon because part of his job was accompanying the Syrian king in that house of Ramon, who was a false god. And so Elisha pardons him by telling him, go in peace. And that brings us to our text for today, which is 2 Kings 5, starting at verse 19, the second half of the verse, all the way to verse 27. Now, every person in this room is a sinner, and some of us have elevated our own desires and turned our back on God. Others have committed our life to Christ, and yet even as Christians, we wrestle with indwelling sin. Now, if you choose to not deal with your sin, it puts you in a bad spot spiritually. And we need to be wary of where our sin will take us. Far too many of us underestimate the way sin affects our life and even overruns us. So I want to ask one question. We're going to answer it four times. And that's the structure of our sermon. Here's the question. Where does your lack of repentance lead you? It's a question we're going to answer. Where does your lack of repentance lead you? And I'm going to have four answers. And never fear, the first answer is going to be the longest. The second, third, and fourth answer are going to be much more brief. So when we get to the end of the first point, don't be scared about the time. All right, so let's read first, 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 19 to 27. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, a servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. And as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman. And when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well. And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim, two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give me a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, please accept the two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver and two bags and two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants, and they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house, and he sent the men away, and they departed. 
And he went in and stood before his master. And Elijah said to him, Where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, Your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchard and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence a leper like snow. So our, our key question for this morning, where does your lack of repentance lead you? Answer number one, your unrepentant sin starts with greed and ends in hypocrisy. Your unrepentant sin starts with greed and ends with hypocrisy. What we're going to see is a chain reaction of sin going on. And there are going to be three dominoes that are going to fall. And so I'm going to make, give you three subpoints under point number one to trace out these three dominoes that are going to fall as we see the way sin affects our lives. So subpoint number one, under answer number one, the chain reaction starts with greed. This is the first domino to fall. Look there at verse 19 and 20 again. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, a servant of Elijah, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this Naaman, the Syrian, in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Naaman has gone a short distance, and Gehazi, who is Elisha's servant, makes a declaration here in verse 20. Gehazi thinks Elisha, he says, my master has been too easy on Naaman by not accepting any of Naaman's gifts. Gehazi swears by the Lord that he'll run, notice run, not walk, after Naaman in order to get something from him. And he calls Naaman the Syrian, which is probably some kind of ethnic jab at him. Greed has overrun Gehazi's heart. Greed is an inordinate longing for material gain, be it money or a car or a big house or any kinds of material stuff. It's a, or a longing after immaterial things like power or status. It's a corrupt desire to possess more than one needs. And you hear that, that's key. It's a corrupt desire to possess more than one needs. What are you greedy for? Is it material things like money or more stuff in life? Or is it more relational things like power or status? Now, if you're not a follower of Christ, thank you for coming. What a wonderful thing to come and join God's people on a Sunday morning. Recognize that greed affects all of our hearts. There's not a single one of us that escapes the grip of greed. We all wrestle with it. And our secular culture often holds out greed as a virtue. But Christianity says, not so fast. It's an all-consuming desire that can destroy it. So what are you greedy for? Just think about it for a moment. What are you greedy for in this life? What are you longing for that can lead you down an unhealthy and destructive path? Subpoint number two, 
Greed is the root of all kinds of evil. Greed is the root of all kinds of evil. Where you see greed, you also have all kinds of other sin that rise up alongside of it. Paul warned, as we read earlier in the service, 1 Timothy chapter 6, the love of money is the root of all evil. Hear that? It's the root of all evil. Where there is greed, there will be all kinds of other trouble that will show up. So I'm going to call them co-conspirators with greed. Here's what we're going to look at. Coveting, pride, being opportunistic, and lying. Let me just spell out each one of them as we see them here in the text. So first notice here, Gehazi coveted Naaman's wealth. Gehazi was a servant of Elijah, and as a servant, he probably had all of his basic needs met. A home and food and clothing. But he wasn't content with what he already had. And he coveted Naaman's gifts. We're similar, aren't we? We're discontent with what God has given us, and we want more. We're not ultimately content with the good things that He has given to us in our life. Uh, So we break the Tenth Commandment. What do you want right now that belongs to someone else? When we covet another person's stuff, it's like slapping God in the face and saying, I'm not content with what you have given me. Now kids, have you ever wanted something that belongs to someone else? You know, have you seen something that your siblings have and think, oh, I want that too. And so you go over and mom, to say, mommy and daddy, when can I get one of them? When, when do I get to have one of them? You ever see an advertisement on TV or in a magazine and think, oh, I would love to have that. Well, if you struggle with greed, you're just like your parents and every one of us here. It's a good thing to go and tell your parents about the ways that you're struggling with greed. Talk about that with them today over lunch. Tell them some of the things that you wanted in life, that you've coveted. Now, we've seen that lying and coveting are both the problem overall. But we also see some of the other sins that are are, are there. We see that greed's co-conspirators also for opportunities. Look at the other half of verse 20. Gehazi swears on the Lord, as the Lord lives, that he's going to run, not walk, after Naaman and get something from him. Sense the urgency of the moment. Greedy desires don't want to miss opportunities to better itself. So coveting, pride, being opportunistic is just a start. But we also see greed leads to lying. That's verse 21 and 22 and 25 and 26. Look there at verse 21. Gehazi chases after Naaman. And when Naaman sees someone running after him, he's so shocked, he gets down from his chariot. And he says, it's all well. And what does Gehazi say to him? Uh, he, he tells him a blunt lie. Look there in verse 22. He, he tells him fiction. He takes advantage of his boss's credibility. The prophet's credibility. He says, my master has sent me. And he makes up a story about two prophets from the school of prophets who had just a few minutes ago arrived and needed help. Well, what better way to tug on Naaman's heartstrings than to make up a story about seminary students? About poor, lowly seminary students. Surely, Naaman could help invest in some seminary students. Now notice, Gehazi doesn't ask for gold, though Naaman had plenty of gold that he brought along with him. 
He requests one talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Now, as Wheaton President Phil Riken put it, Gehazi asked for enough to satisfy his greed, but not enough to arouse Naaman's suspicion. In verse 25, Gehazi returns to his master Elijah. Elijah asks him, where have you been? And Gehazi answers with another blunt lie. Your servant went nowhere. Now, lying is a breaking of God's moral law. It's an ethical issue. Our biblical ethic as Christians says, God is truth and light, and he never, ever, ever lies. And therefore, as his people, we are to do the same. We are to live as children of the light, to be people of the truth, to be honest in all of our endeavors. We're to seek to live differently than everyone else in the world by showing what God is like when we live truthful, honest lives. And in a world where lying is commonplace, those who follow God and choose not to lie will stand out like bright lights in a pitch dark night. Now, I've been reading with one of my kids, Lights in a Dark Place by Rebecca Davis, which chronicles stories of missionaries in Colombia. Russell was a missionary in Colombia, and at one point, communist rebels had actually kidnapped him. And at the moment when he was being kidnapped, he lied to the captors when they said, do you have a gun? And it turns out he had a gun, and he pulled out a gun and ended up shooting one of the communists. Later on, he was confronted by one of his captors. And Rebecca Davis writes about how Russell felt convicted by lying to them. And he says, I told you I didn't have a gun, and that was wrong. I should, have lied. I should not have lied. Rather, I should have trusted God to protect me. It was wrong to lie. Rebecca Davis writes, it was wrong to lie. The communist revolutionaries lied all the time. Their lives were built on lies. They knew that their leaders lied to them. They lied to each other. They lied to their captors. And of course, they expected him to lie. Yet he said it was wrong to lie. They were shocked. They were absolutely shocked that someone would say it was wrong to lie. They, they were spellbound by the fact that this man would say it was wrong to lie. And even then he would apologize for a lie. It stood out to them because they lived in a culture and, and, and even in a group of revolutionaries that lied all the time. Now, I, I, I live in the middle of D.C. And if you walk out into our church parking lot, you don't see many stars in the night because the, the lights in the city. And every, every summer, once or twice in the summer, hopefully this summer twice, we're going to go camping as a family. And what I love is being far away from the city and being able to look up into the sky without all those lights and be able to see a, a sky full of stars. The stars stand out brightly in the middle of the night sky. Well, if you choose to have a life of honesty and truthfulness, you will stand out like those stars. You'll stand out in, in a world that's full of darkness. And it'll be remarkable to people. If you build a life on truth, not lies, it'll make a difference in your testimony and your witness to other people. It was for Russell. 
to these communist rebels. And it will be for us as we live in this world that is so full of lying. Verse 25, notice. A liar is blind to God. The lying person is so oriented around his or own self-interest that he acts as if God doesn't exist. Gehazi lies to the prophet as if God doesn't see and God doesn't know what he did. It's the epitome of foolishness to think and act this way. And yet, we know that God sees and knows everything. Elisha's response to Gehazi was, Did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Now, don't think of Elisha as some Marvel superhero with some kind of superpower to be able to overhear the conversation that obviously happened miles away. No, in fact, he's God's representative. He could supernaturally see and know things that happened because God gave him ability to do that as a prophet. And he knew what Gehazi had done. Now God knows. He knows if you're lying, so don't be deceived. God knows. He knows if you've taken advantage of other people. He knows. He knows if you're exaggerating. He knows if you're telling half-truths. He knows if you're manipulating other people. God knows. He can see what you're doing. And a fundamental reality of the Christian life is to recognize that God's present with us. And we're often deceived in thinking, well, nobody else sees what I'm doing. Nobody else actually knows what I'm doing right now. And yet God sees. God knows. So don't be deceived in thinking you're all by yourself. God knows what you're doing. And a life of integrity, a life built on Christ, will live like God, will live like His Son. Now the first domino was Gehazi's greed. And that domino fell and it knocked over a number of other dominoes. Coveting and pride and opportunistic and lying. And that domino fell and it knocks over yet one more. This is subpoint number three. A life of greed ends with hypocrisy. A life of greed ends with hypocrisy. It seems that Elisha lives at the top of a hill. If you look back later, 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 27, it tells of a woman who sought after Elijah when her son got sick, and it says she reached the man of God at the mountain. Now, it looks like Gehazi, his servant, lived at the bottom of the mountain. He hid the silver and change of clothes that he took from Naaman. And when Gehazi got to his home at the bottom of the mountain, he excused Naaman's servants and hid Naaman's generous gifts in his home. He was a hypocrite. A hypocrite is a person who acts like a person of faith on Sundays, and yet during the rest of the week, acts like the world. Acts like a non-Christian. Acts like the rest of everybody uh, does in this world. And so the rest of the week lives in contradiction to his, his or her faith. They live like the world, not like a Christian. Gehazi hid the silver and clothing in from his master and then boldly lied to his face when he asked. So once a year, for the last 20 years of ministry, I've encountered, sadly, an adulterer in the course of my counseling ministry who has spent sometimes months, sometimes years, hiding their sexual sin. 
I talked to a Christian a couple of years ago who had bluntly lied to their boss because they wanted to cover up something. And they felt like it wasn't wrong because of what they wanted to do to lie to their boss. And I've counseled with a single Christian who was sleeping with someone and didn't tell anyone until it was discovered that he'd gotten the other person pregnant. Ask any hypocrite and you'll often hear, how did I end up here? How did I end up in this position? Well, recognize sin dulls your senses. It lulls you into taking one more step and one more step and one more step. And each of those dominoes begin to fall and eventually you find yourself at a place where your heart is hardened. And the sins are connected like dominoes on a table. You, you see dominoes, you knock one down and you see them all tumble down. Well, you start with greed as the root of all kinds of other evil and you begin to see all kinds of other sins that follow with it. Greed doesn't live in isolation. It brings along all kinds of other trouble. Commit one sin, sin greed, and it leads to another. Coveting and being opportunistic and lying. And with each sin, you grow deeper and deeper and deeper in a hole of hypocrisy. A hypocritical lifestyle is one that hides from everyone else. Does not come out into the open. And it's a dreadful way to live. So back to our original question, where does your lack of repentance lead you? And this leads to point number two, or answer number two. Your unrepentant sin betrays God's grace. And this is verse 22 and 23. Point number two, your unrepentant sin betrays God's grace. This is verse 22 and 23. And he said, all is well. My master has sent me to say that... There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men and the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, Please be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. Now, much more briefly, this is the second problem. Gehazi betrayed God's grace. Now, if you go back to the early part of the story, when Naaman went to Elijah and received, uh, to receive a prosperity gospel healing, Elisha sent him away to wash himself in the Jordan River. That was verse 10. Now, why did Elijah send Naaman to the Jordan River? Because he wanted Naaman to know that the miracle wasn't from the prophet, but was from God himself. He didn't want Naaman to get confused. He wanted him to know that this was mercy from God to a Gentile. A Gentile commander from a foreign nation who was coming to be healed. And he wanted, the prophet wanted to be really clear that God was doing this great miracle. So that's why Elijah didn't even appear at the door when Naaman came to his home. He sent a messenger and said, go to the Jordan River. Go to the mangy Jordan River. And go wash yourself. And come and see how your leprosy will be taken away. Only God could do that kind of miracle. The miracle of Naaman's healing was an act of God's grace. That's why Elijah sent him away to the river and didn't even appear at the door. Now when Gehazi exploited Naaman, he hid his goods in his home and lied to his master. 
He betrayed the Lord of the universe. God saved Naaman, and when Gehazi betrayed God's grace, he was exploiting, exploiting a new believer. He was exploiting a, a brand new believer. He showed himself greedy and wicked in doing that. Now remember in verse 16 that Naaman had offered gifts to Elijah, but the prophet refused. And even after Naaman's urging of him, Elijah wanted Naaman to know that this healing was an act of God. Now in Naaman's land, Syria, the exchange of money and gifts for healing would be commonplace. It was the Old Testament version of a prosperity gospel where false gods and false prophets demanded money for their services. It was a Benny healing service. You give me money, and I'll give you what you want out of this life. It's your best life now if you really want it. Just pay up enough, and I'll give it to you. Now, if anyone ever tells you that this is what Christianity is about, give me enough money, give me enough of your goods, and then I'll give you a better life. Well, that's a lie from the pit of hell. If you ever hear that from a pulpit, then run as far as you can. Because that's a prosperity gospel. It's promising you blessing in exchange for monetary wealth. And, and that is not Christianity in the least. Elijah makes clear that it was God who healed Naaman. God showed unmerited favor to this Gentile commander from a foreign country. And you know, notice there in verse 22, when Gehazi offered this lie about the two sons of the prophet, he was exploiting a brand new convert's generosity. Naaman is a brand new believer. Gehazi's greed and lying has a goal to take advantage of Naaman's wealth for Gehazi's own personal gain. In verse 23, Naaman's newfound faith is generous. He gives Gehazi not one piece of silver, which is what he asked for, but two pieces of silver and two changes of clothing, and he loads them up on his servants to even carry them for Gehazi back to his home. Now, that's a wicked thing to do, to exploit believers of their wealth for the sake of your own personal gain, to exploit God's people, to garner their wealth for the sake of your own personal gain. When you do that, you betray God's grace. You see the gracious works of God and you say, I don't care about God. All I care about is myself. That's an offense against God and it's a wicked thing to do, to exploit God's people and to manipulate them for your own personal gain. And that brings us back to our original question. What does unrepentant sin lead to? And our, my third answer, number three, unrepentant sin leads to God's judgment. That's verses 26 and 27. But he said to him, did not my heart go when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like snow. Now, Naaman, the unbelieving Gentile, was converted through God's mercy and healing. His leprosy was miraculously taken away. Gehazi was a servant of the prophet Elijah. He had a front row seat to all of the miracles of the prophet. He had seen healings. He had seen resurrections from the dead. He'd seen the miracle of flowing oil. He'd seen all of it. He'd been a part of the prophet's life. 
Yet, he chose self-interest over God. And for that, he faced God's judgment. The irony of the story is that Naaman, a Gentile, a Gentile was healed of his leprosy because he obeyed the word of the Lord. And yet, Gehazi, an Israelite, the, the servant of the prophet, was inflicted with God's leprosy as an act of judgment. Someone who's on the front row seat of watching what God does was inflicted with judgment. Now, the wrath of God is real. Leprosy is simply a picture of God's judgment for our unrepentant sin. And, and though you probably will never face leprosy as an act of God's judgment, your disobedience and lack of repentance will have consequences. The worst of which is hell. There is wrath for our sin. We should have no doubt about it. And so we have to take our sins seriously. Now a skeptic might say to me, but Christ died for me. He's forgiven me. Why are you warning me of these things? Well, a hypocrite claims Christ's atonement for their sin, and yet they, they refuse to give up their sin. They hold on to it. They say yes to their sin. And that won't work. If you're living a hypocritical life and you don't turn, you will face God's judgment. So if you're living a hypocritical life right now, let that be a warning to you. This is especially true for the people of God who, like Gehazi, had a front row seat to all of what God has done, and in our case, all of what God has done through Christ. You know, what a terrible situation. Gehazi faced God's judgment and betrayed God's grace. Which then leads us to, uh, one last time, answering our question. What can be done about this? Is there any hope for us? What does our lack of repentance lead us to? Well, our fourth answer, your unrepentant sin leads you to the cross. There is hope for those who are unrepentant. If you're exploiting God's people for your own personal gain, if you're greedy and lying and a hypocrite, if you're living for yourself and blind to God, if you're manipulating or cheating or hot-headed in your anger, if you're belittling, belittling your kids or your spouse, or you're constantly arguing with other people, yet pretending to be all nice at church, if any of these describe you, if any of these describe you, well, let me invite you to repent. Repentance is a turning from our sin, a turning our back on our sin, and saying no to our sin and saying yes to God. Repentance means you see your sin as offense against a holy God. Repentance means you will own your sin and turn from it. Repentance means you're grieved over your wrong. There is genuine godly sorrow over what you've done. Repentance means you will show a zeal for cutting off your sin, for rectifying wrongs, for making amends, and accepting consequences for your sins. Repentance for a hypocrite means no longer living for oneself, but orienting your life around what God wants. It means being honest about your hypocrisy with God and with others and taking active steps to find it. Repentance for a greedy person means coming to terms with your selfishness and rejecting your self-exalting desires 
and learning to put others ahead of yourself. Repentance for a liar means being honest about your deception and taking steps to live truthfully and putting your life in the light. And the list could go on and on and on. If we're willing to turn from our sins and live in the light and repent of our sins, Christ can do so much for us. How do you need to repent today? What sins do you need to turn from today? Well, we should conclude. Flip over for a moment to chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. You can read a little bit later the first four verses, but I just want to point out something. There is real hope for the repentant. Here in chapter 8, it's a story about Elisha in the company of the king. And the king asked of all people Gehazi to recount the stories of Elijah's great work. Now, there's no recounting of the leprosy in chapter 8 and Gehazi's disobedience before the Lord. There's no recounting of all the things that he had done. In fact, Gehazi seems to be in the king's good graces and a great help to the king in recounting Elisha's miraculous works and even connecting the king with one of Elisha's former beneficiaries. The presumption is that Gehazi must have repented somewhere between chapter 5 and chapter 8. The gospel is the good news that there is mercy waiting for the repentant. Christ died for all who will turn to him in, in their sins and choose to follow him. The great news for us today is that Christ died for our sins. If you're not repenting of your sins, there's actually hope. You can turn today and trust in Him and run to the cross and find hope in Him. What great news there is for us to trust in Christ. Though our sins are great, His mercy is even greater than our sins. So if you've been hiding from God, if you've been stuck in your sin, if you felt hopeless and you just don't know what to do, well, come talk to me at the door at the end of today or talk to any of the elders here or just turn to someone around you. You're more than likely sitting around some Christians and just saying, here's my problem. Is there a way to help me? Don't let this day pass. There is mercy for every unrepentant sinner who wants to know Christ. There is mercy at the foot of the cross. So let today be the day where you say to Christ, I need your help. I can't do this anymore. I need to confess my sins and I need you to help me. Come and know Christ's forgiveness and know that he waits for you at the foot of the cross. Whoever you are, would you consider coming to Christ today? Let's pray together. Lord, there is mercy for every sinner who wants to trust in you. So help us today to trust in your son, to trust in what he's done for us. Help us to repent of our sins and have faith in him. It's in his name we pray these things. Amen.